episode seven, Marky. We got a big deal here, a big writer, Lisa Marie Redman, who is a, a former Buffalo police detective and a Buffalo uh, cold case detective, a graduate from Frontier High School, 89, UB graduate, 97. Uh, welcome to the program, Lisa. Thanks, and thanks for having me. No problem. Lisa, you have an interesting story where you started out as a Buffalo police, a regular PO, moved up the ladder to detective, and then went into the cold case files. Uh, how, does, how does one from Frontier High School in UB say, I want to be a police officer? Well, when I took the exam, you have to take an exam to become a Buffalo police officer. I actually took it on my 21st birthday. All my friends were taking it, and when I got the results back, it turned out that I was uh, 35 overall, so I went in the very first academy class off the list, and I was going to UB. I was still a student at UB, and I didn't know how I was going to swing it, but I made it through six months of the academy, and then I got assigned to Precinct 5 at Grant and Ferry, uh, which is the west side. The precinct house is no longer there. It's been bulldozed. But uh, I would work from 9 at night till 7 in the morning and then go to school at the University of Buffalo. I'd drive at 7 o'clock, excuse me, 7 o'clock in the morning to make it to my 8 o'clock class at UB because I really wanted to finish out my degree there. Well, that's hustle, Mark. That is hustle. So you're put right into the west side. What, what are kind of some of the challenges coming out of the academy getting thrown in? It's not like you're thrown into South Buffalo here you're going right into the west side which you know sometimes could be rough it it was a very very rough time in the city of Buffalo I came out of the academy in December of 93 and 1994 was the year that Buffalo had the most homicides it ever recorded and it was a very violent time it was the height of the crack, crack epidemic and it was a real eye-opener having grown up in Hamburg to see that but I was always blessed that I had excellent partners and I think that really made a difference and I look back on it and I wonder how I how I ever even survived those first few years and I but I spent about a year at precinct five and then I transferred over to Precinct 3, which is the downtown theater district, and it was there that uh, I met, um, my boss was a man named Inspector Redmond, who I loved him, he was a great boss, and he asked me one day, he said, you know, we want to do this detail, and we were wondering if you want to go undercover, and I was said, sure, I'd love to go undercover for you, and it was the prostitution detail. <laughs> <laughs> and... It was through that that I happened to see his son, who was also police, a police officer, not a John, <laughs> and out, and I walked up to him and started telling him how much I loved working for his father, and he asked me out, and the rest is history, and I don't think many women can say that their father-in-law put them on the street as a prostitute. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, was there ever a day that, like, you were, you were there and you're like, I'm just quitting, like, this is it? Like, I have a degree, I'm going to go do something else? Or was it like a love thing with the police department? You know, I think that anyone that 
becomes a police officer, it's not it's not a job. I think it's like being a doctor or a nurse or a teacher. It's it's more of a lifestyle. It takes over your whole life. And when you're married to another cop, it definitely takes over your whole life. And I think the hardest part was walking away from it because you have to sort of retrain yourself to be and I wish people could see I'm using air quotes here be a normal person you're so that you're not on the job 24 7 it's really hard it's very difficult to work for 20 when I retired in uh, 2015 I had spent 22 years on the job I was 44 I had literally been a police officer for half my life and when you walk away from that it's very hard to say okay what comes next and for me it was writing and that's what came next you know I think that's why a lot of people have a that are police officers have a hard time retiring because it's a very scary thing when it becomes so much a part of your identity is what what's going for to come sure. next I mean it, we we know like cops and and firefighters and they talk shop like all day is it like is it because it's on your mind or is it just like all that interesting to you you know what I mean well, it, it just becomes so much a part of you. And and when you're married to another police officer, you can't help but talk shop because, oh, what did you do at work today, honey? Oh, I did this, and so this is what I did. So you can't help but talk shop. And then when you retire, it's almost like someone immediately turning off a faucet. Yeah. And now you are... You're on the outside. You're on the outside, exactly. And when you go back, because my husband, uh, he went to homicide. He was in the DEA task force. And when I left cold case, he went to homicide after I left. And I went and visited him a couple times. And I remember walking into the homicide squad and thinking, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I worked here for eight years, but I don't belong here now. Wow. And it's a really, really bizarre feeling. Back to the west side, do you think it, it was a an advantage to have two-person cars back then? Absolutely. Absolutely. It really helps you. Not, I don't want to say pass the time, but uh, it, it, it really helps having someone having your back right next to you. And I think that's, I don't want to say a mistake, but I would like to see them in certain districts go back to that. What, what do you I, think? I definitely agree with the two-man car. For sure, it it's it's safer. It's instead of having to send three cars to a scene, you're only sending one car with two officers. So I don't see how it saves money by dividing. Yeah, by dividing everybody up, I don't see all it does is make it that much less safe for the officers, in my opinion. You always look at, you know, you always see it on shows like The Wire where, oh, they got to crunch numbers. You got to get your numbers. Was that ever happening in the, the Buffalo Police Department? Like, you better get your numbers up. You better get your arrests up. No, they never, um, they never ever pushed us to get a certain amount of arrests ever because, unfortunately, the arrests were there. You know, it was, sure. it was never a question of, you know, there's not enough crime in the city of Buffalo. You know, so that was never, ever an issue. There were issues. Is there enough money? You know, they're going to cut the overtime. They're going to, you know, they're going to cut back on um, certain details. 
for specific things, like like I had mentioned the prostitution detail, maybe that year they wouldn't have money to be able to pay to have a, detail, a special detail like that. So yeah, there is, there is money crunching, but they never, ever, ever said you have to make this many arrests or give out this many tickets. Never, never, ever. Oh, that's good to hear. So... So you're a regular PO. We we've had people ask, do you remember your first arrest? I do remember my first arrest. A man went into a convenience store and stole, I want to say, two or three sweatshirts. And he was walking down the street with the sweatshirts. And I spotted him walking down the street. And he went and tried to hide in a tanning salon. And so we had to go into the tanning salon and throw the cuffs on him. And I remember being so excited, and that was my very first big arrest, was the theft of sweatshirts. <laughs> it's always that way, isn't it? Yeah, but you had to so, make up, like, a textile arrest, you know? You had to make something up way better. <laughs> yeah, it, I, it, was, it was nothing. But, but to me, it was the biggest, grandest events that had ever happened to me was my first, you know, my first arrest. Like, it, there, there's obvious dangers. Such a shady situation. I can't believe how it turned out. All the time. Every time? Not. I mean, maybe, right? <laughs> you know, and that's the thing is you never know ever how close you might have come. And there are always situations where afterwards you think about it, you get back to the station house, and you're sitting at the reserve room table, and you're like, oh, that could have went really bad in so many ways. And you and you and you start rethinking and playing it back in your head over and over again. And that's when the that's when the fear kicks in is usually afterwards because when it's happening, you're just reacting. It's muscle memory, it's training, and that's kicking in. But afterwards you sit back and you think, Oh man, that could have really, really, really went bad. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy how much you do rely on training and it just goes right back to it and it's always like you know, somebody says something to you at one point in your career and you probably are just like, you do that, right? Like, just. Well, you you watch your senior officers and you see what they do and you try to pick the best of the best. And then you also see officers that you don't want to be like at all and you learn not to do what they do. So in a way, like when we're talking about partners, that was also a good thing about having a partner is that they they could help you distinguish what is a good practice and what's bad practice because you will never get anywhere by walking in and yelling and swearing and escalating a situation. Uh, my one longtime partner in in over four years, I only saw him lose his temper. And when I say lose his temper, I mean, he raised his voice. That's how calm he was all the time. Twice he raised his voice in two years. And that's it. And he taught me that your number one weapon is your brain and your mouth. Not your gun, not your mace, not your handcuffs. You have to talk, you have to talk your way through everything. And he's the one who taught me that. What did you, what did you see on the West Side with, at the time, the way younger people react to the police, which is a lot different now. I've always said that I think police should be in the first grade in the kindergarten and start training a little bit more respect for 
you know, respect for the badge, and maybe later on in life it, it will help us as a community or the police in general. Well, what do you what, think of that? Well, one of the things that it used to be was that cops lived in the city and they lived in their neighborhoods. Uh, I live in South Buffalo now, and there are there are cops all over the place and firemen, and you know them and you see them, and a lot of them work in the South District. And if you if it's someone you've always known since you were in grade school because they were dropping their kids off at the same grammar school, you're going to have more respect for them. When uh, cops started moving out of the city and policing neighborhoods that they knew nothing about, that's a big disconnect. And now cops have to live in the city again. And I think that's a really good thing. And firemen. I think that's a really good thing for the neighborhoods. I, I really do. do. So we're we're just a regular PO. When do you when does it start to say, you know what, I'm gonna take a detective test, maybe a lieutenant test. When does that start getting into your head? Uh I knew I wanted to be a detective. I would see the detectives come to the scenes with their fedoras because in the early 90s they still would wear fedoras (laughs) and trench coats and I would look at them and think I want to do what they do and so but when I first got on the job there was no exam for detectives it was just promotion it was just a promotion and and, um, no one really knew it came from the mayor and no one really knew what the details of it were all of a sudden 10 guys or and ladies all of a sudden were detectives and the you know the big joke was well if you knew how to be a detective you were one and then Argil Kurlikowski who was commissioner decided to make an exam for detectives and I actually took the very first detective exam oh really wow yes and I got made detective off that very first the list. very first one yes cool. off that first list and I went to and there were openings in several squads but I wanted to go to the sex offense squad, which is sort of a misnomer because it handles domestic violence, sex offenses, uh, elder abuse, uh, child abuse, and missing persons. So basically all your felony crimes against the persons. Um, And I really wanted to go there because everyone said, if you're going to be a detective, that's where you're going to go to learn. And so I went and I spent eight years there. And I mean, you really connect with people there because like the stories, they'd be so sad. It's very difficult to work in that squad, but it's also very rewarding because those victims are truly the least of us and the most vulnerable, whether it's domestic violence, child abuse, elder abuse. And you you really have to have a, a tough skin because some of the stories are so incredibly sad, but then you have to go and get the perpetrators and one of the things that you have to do is put your emotions in check because you have to make sure that when you go to arrest someone for one of these heinous crimes that you treat them with respect because there is a presumption of innocence no matter how heinous the crime and make sure you do everything by the book because you don't want the case to get thrown out because of technicality, because you let your emotions take over. And so you really have to keep yourself in check to make sure that justice is served. So in that respect, I really feel that it was a great place 
to learn how to be a good detective. When you get there, is it like, are you just thrown into it? There's no training process. Um, and no, I didn't. I, I, You know what? You miss your friends on patrol, but they are two totally separate jobs. What I liked is that you had a lot of control over your own cases, and you can you start a case and then you finish the case, as opposed to when you're on patrol, you have 20 minutes to solve a problem, and then it either gets passed on to the detectives or it doesn't, and you don't really have any resolution or you don't really know what happens to these people. And in the detective division, you know exactly what happens to everyone involved, and and that's a really good and gives that's you a really closure. Good thing. Almost. It, yes, and it gives you closure because sometimes you really do think. When you're on patrol, you go to a house and maybe it's a holiday and um, something happened, like uh, someone came in and stole all the Christmas presents, which is something that happens every year. People break into houses and steal all the Christmas presents. And you wonder, you know, did those kids get a Christmas? You know, and it, that that's the type of thing that eats you up. Like, did, you know, did, did their grandparents come through and, you know, make up for it? Or did they just have no Christmas presents, you know? And that type of thing eats you up, you know. So at least in the detective division, you know exactly how it ends up. I'm sure the detectives in the precinct that followed up on that know whether or not, you know, the kids got presents that year. But as a patrol officer, you really don't. So you're sort of left hanging. Now, when you're a detective, you're running on any judges that you just can't, you just, you just can't believe it? Like, I can't believe this guy's a judge. He's totally on our side he's totally on their side believe it or not i never ever ever had any problems with any judge at all the, that's good all to hear. the the judges in buffalo were at least that i came encountered with i really uh, i never had a problem with any of the judges in buffalo Two, early 2000s at this point so i became a detective and went to the sex offense squad in 99 and I remained there until about, well, I remained there until I got on the Bike Path Rapist Task Force. And that year, what year is that? Uh, that was, um, Joan Diver was found murdered in September of uh, 2006. And then I joined the task force, um, actually, uh, January 1st of 2007 uh the task force was had already been formed but i was off on a, a short medical leave so as soon as i got off my medical leave i went right to the task force i mean and that's 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 a big case in uh western new york history 2007 i call him the bike path scumbag <laughs> he he comes it floats uh around that there's something up here what what were your early uh, findings when you came on that task force? Well, when I had been in the sex offense squad, I had been... The cases that Buffalo had involving the bike path rapist, um, all except for one, the statute of limitations were up. My very first day in the sex offense squad, my lieutenant, um, Lieutenant David Mann, who is still the lieutenant of the sex offense squad, brought a binder to my desk and put it on my desk and he said do you want to take these cases over and I said yes so for eight years I when I wasn't working my 
regular caseload, I was following up on leads, sucking my partners into it, you know, getting interns involved, you know, uh, the um, advocates that we had working at our office, getting them involved because we get tips all the time and we'd follow up on leads. And people said that he was either dead in jail or moved away. And I just didn't believe that. I just, I really believed that he was still out there. And then all of a sudden, after such a long lull, so many years, Joan Diver gets horribly murdered and it everything everything just comes rushing back, you know, and Yeah, this guy's still out there. This guy's still out there. And the powers that be, thankfully, put together the, a task force. And one of the problems had always been that there had been cases in Amherst, cases in Hamburg, cases in Buffalo, uh, cases with the sheriff's department. And we never had all of the pieces of the puzzle in one place. And once we had all the pieces of the puzzle in one place and had the, and on the task force, everything just kind of fell together fairly quickly. You know, it was amazing. It's amazing what you can accomplish when um, no one cares who gets the credit. You know, yeah, right. and the guys on from the state police and the sheriff's department in Amherst and, you know, all that were all in the task force with us. You know, I, I can't give everyone enough credit. You know, anyone who says they solved a case is a, is, is not telling the truth because right. it takes a whole literally a whole army of people to solve a crime, especially one like that. I mean, you had the original officers, you had the detectives that followed up afterwards, you had the crime scene techs, you had, you know, the prosecutors, and then you had um, the investigators afterwards, and it was just so many people involved in, in catching him, and um, it, I am so, so grateful that, that the powers that be came together and said, you know what, if we all work together, we can catch this guy, and it happened. How do you decipher from, all right, this is connected, to the, they're, they're all connected. How, do, how does that work? Yeah, what, like, what was the thing that connected all? Yeah. yeah like. Well, in that case, he was leaving his DNA. Uh, you know, yeah, but a lot, of, a lot of the cases, one of the things that people don't realize is that DNA is a fairly new development in law enforcement. We didn't really start using DNA in criminal cases in uh, Buffalo, Western New York, until the mid-90s. And he was active going back all the way into, we, we think, 78, 79, 80. You know, nobody really knows exactly how many victims he has because statistically they say only one in 10 rape victims report their rapes. I think it's actually a lot less. Um, and, and especially when you're talking in the seventies and eighties and when you're talking about prostitutes are not going to report rapes. So, but, you know, back in the eighties and nineties, early nineties, he was leaving his DNA because it, it didn't, didn't matter, matter yeah. you know, but he adapted as well. He got you know, he also followed the news and followed developments and he got a vasectomy, which when you uh, process a rape kit or when you, when you used to process a rape kit, 
back in the days when you needed a huge sample, they would look for the biggest cell, which was a sperm cell. And when you get a vasectomy, you stop leaving that. So rape kits would come up blank. Now they test on the Y chromosome. So you need a much tinier sample and you get a much, uh, more, a much more definitive match with the technology. The technology has just grown in leaps and bounds. So the technology caught up to his crimes. And that was something, so we have a lot of, we had a lot of cases of his that were tied through DNA, but some were not. And they tied those together through MO. Uh, he had a, um, he changed his MO several times though, over the course of his crimes. So, but, but there were certain things that he might have done in a few, and then he would go back to that MO. So there were certain things that we looked for, but um, the exact number, nobody really knows. Wow. Now, you always hear that he, uh, the perp went to the the run, the fundraisers. The Linda, yeah, the Linda Yalem run. Are you guys there, kind of like eh, looking around, like? I wonder if we'll see anyone weird hanging around here. Maybe we can get a lead on this. I believe Amherst used to send people to the Linda Yalem run. Uh, I I never went to the Linda Yalem run. It's 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 quite a case now. Do you while you're talk are you talking to the guy they think they got for this case? Anthony Capozzi. Yes. So Anthony Capozzi. How he came into the picture, there had been a, a box that I used to bring around every time they moved the sex offense squad, which I think was three or four times while I worked there. They kept moving our squad. And I had a big box full of serial rapes. And Because I knew one, one thing is that a rapist is a rapist and never stops being a rapist, and eventually these guys would get out of jail. So I would carry this big box of serial rapists around with me with their um, their crimes and I and I had it. And while I was off on that medical leave, my partner Dennis Delano called me up, and he was at the task force already. And he asked, you know, could we have the box? And I said, sure. So, off duty, not getting paid, on my own time, I went, got the box, and brought it to the task force office. And in that box, they found a set of rapes, and they had a whiteboard at the task force office, and they put the set of rapes up on the whiteboard, and Greg Savage from the uh, Sheriff's Department came in and he was looking at the whiteboard and he said, oh, those are the rapes committed by Anthony Capozzi. And Dennis and Scott Petronic from the Sheriff's Department were looking at They're like, no, no, we think these are unknown, you know, at the time, we think these are bike path rapist cases that were never attributed to him. And he's like, oh, no, I worked at the holding center when they brought in Anthony Capozzi. He's in jail for these. And so that was the first inkling that anyone on the task force had that there was an innocent man in jail for the bike path rapists crimes wow and i mean he was kind of it was i don't want to i mean i'll say that he was kind of like a patsy he just like this he wasn't all there so you really ah, all right we got our guy what what do people think around that time like wait a minute we might have the wrong guy here now are you were are you starting to be like an advocate for this guy to get him off so we could get the real guy how does that work well, all of this sort of happened all around the same time, in a very short period of time, yeah. very short, I mean, within weeks. 
So now we're thinking that that we have this innocent man in jail and we're looking for the bike path rapist and we um from that box of files that dennis had um that i brought over to dennis they found a rape case from i want to say it was 80 or 81 of a woman who saw her rapist and followed him out from a mall out into the parking lot and got a license plate and they went back and called the uncle who had who the car had been registered to at the time they the original detective had gone talked to the man who the car was registered to uh talked to the victim showed her a photo array of this man she said no that's not him he said i had the car the whole weekend so Scott Petronic and Alan Rosansky, and I want to say Dennis from the Sheriff's Department, or not Dennis is from Buffalo, but the Alan and Scott are from the Sheriff's Department, call up the uncle, and he admits to them, no, my nephew had it, and that was Altimio Sanchez, and that was the bike path rapist. And that was the big that was the big tip that... that yes, and that's when the infamous um, utensil taking happened at Soleil restaurant okay yeah. and they got the um the abandoned dna sample through his utensils at Soleil restaurant and then we were all sitting around the phone waiting for the phone to ring like waiting for a baby to be born <laughs> and you could cut the tension with a knife is this the guy because over the years especially the other detectives um some from amherst um you come across so many guys and you think this is it this is him this has to be him it, this has to be and you get their dna results back and it's not and you know you get your hopes up and just get squashed so many times and when that phone rang and uh john Simich from the lab said this you got it this Whoa. is it that's great work it was just it, it it's 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 the moment in your career when you think, yeah, this is this is why I became a cop. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's a great story. Are there any other uh, case? Like, I mean, that was huge. That was huge. Is there any other cases that uh, you know ended up working out that way? Well, you were involved in the the Cynthia Cynthia Epps case, weren't you? Yes. Okay, so talk a little about Cynthia Epps. Cynthia Epps was a woman who was found uh, partially dismembered on the east side uh, in the in the in the 1990s and my partner at the time uh, Charlie Aronica had um, found the case and uh, we were working it and we were looking at you know her uh, boyfriend and um, different rapists in the um, area at the time because we had a DNA profile a full DNA profile so um Sort of the same thing with the bike path rapist where we had a full profile but no name. We had to put a name to this. And that is such a fr frustrating thing when you have a DNA profile and you don't ha and you can't put a name onto it. And I remember talking to um, one of the uh, men that work at the lab, really great guy, Paul Mazer, and he said, Lisa, just look in the file. What other men are in the file we know it's a male dna and i'm like well you know i, I 
we've tested all these people and I'm flipping through the pages and I'm like, well, there's a guy that found founder that called that 911 and he's like, oh, why don't you take a look at him? And so I ran his record and it turned out he had done 12 years in Attica for murdering a woman <laughs> and he was, and they, they, and as it turned out, we went and talked to him in Marcy. He was in Marcy prison, my partner, Charlie and I, and he confessed to murdering and attempting to dismember Cynthia. And another one of those cases where sometimes it's right in front of you. And it, it was right in front of the detectives the whole time. And, you know, you never you never want to think that someone will would call the police and say, hey, there's a body in my backyard, you know, in this chest and I found it. And that someone is that evil and that devious. But there are, you know, and you know, and he, you know, he was sitting in, and he was sitting in jail for another heinous crime when he admitted to that. How often do you run into people that are almost they want to be caught? And then when you finally catch them, they run. I did it. You got me. Took you long enough. There was one case. Uh, my partner, uh, Brian Ross, took a call from a young woman who said that a guy had come up to her in church and admitted to her to killing her brother. Really? And he went and left his card at this person's house. We went home. It was a Friday. We went home for the day. And he had come to headquarters, police headquarters. And the um, our the report technicians had said, well, you know, they're gone for the day. You know, it's after six. They're gone. They're home. You know, you have to come back Monday. He showed up Monday morning with nothing on him but his ID. So my partner Brian had him in the interview room, read him his rights. Um, my partner Charlie and I are on the other side of the two-way mirror because we um, this was before we recorded everything. We're going to take notes, you know. So that would be my job would be to take notes of everything. And Brian asked him, uh, do you know and, and said the name of the victim and he said no and then he pulled out a picture of the house and said do you know this house and he said oh yeah I killed him <laughs> you got me a and my, my my partner Charlie who had been on 30 years looked at me and I looked at him and we were we were just floored we're like okay that 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 doesn't really happen but as it turned out he had come from um Puerto Rico and he had been a very very bad man and uh, killed this uh, young man and in the meantime between us talking to him and, th and that happening he had found God he got married he had kids and wanted to atone he pled guilty to the crime he c confessed and went to jail and like I said he showed up with nothing but his ID on him he was ready to go to jail he was ready to admit to what he did like in your book, uh, you know, you have Lauren Riley sitting around and she just takes a phone call one day. And that's exactly how, is that like how that sparks it in your brain? Yeah, a lot of the cases that we did end up solving were because victims' family members would call us, you know. And that was such a heartbreaking thing is that 
you know, for every one case that we solved, you know, there were, so, there are so many more that we didn't solve. And it doesn't mean their families love them any less or are any less tortured. And I still stay awake at night thinking about some of these cases. And, you know, I, you know, the family members just want to know that someone still remembers and that someone's trying. That's all they want is for someone to try right. to solve their loved one's murder, you know? And, you know, but unfortunately some of the cases, you know, it just, it just didn't happen. And I, I wish I knew why some cases blew open so easily and other ones just didn't. But at the same time, you want to always make sure that you're putting the right person in jail and not just a person in jail. Oh yeah, like the the girl. That, what happened with the woman on Southside? Uh, she was Lindy Jack. That that was our, my case. Yeah. Oh okay. Um. So Lindy Lindy Jack was in jail for the murder of her 13 year old daughter, and as we um, were investigating a separate case, the murder of Joan Giambra, we started noticing some similarities, and things just weren't adding up. And the more we looked at it, the more we realized that Lindy Jack um, didn't kill her daughter. And she's actually uh, the first woman in the United States to be released um, due to DNA evidence oh, oh, oh. for for a murder. Um, wow. Right down the street, huh? Yeah. You know, and unfortunately, uh, she has since passed away. Oh, I didn't know that yeah, either. She, oh. she has she passed away. But... Um, at least she got to be with her with her children, you know. Absolved of her crime. Uh, yes. You know. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, so you're hustling on the streets, you're fixing people's lives, but you're still writing at this time. You, you've always been a writer. So how does, so how does that how does that get, get going, for you're going to be a writer now. Talk a little history about being a writer and then, where it takes off. So while, while I'm being a police officer, I'm still writing. I'm writing short stories. I'm writing, um, you know, bad drafts of, of novels. And, you know, one of the things about being a writer is you have to, you have to take time to, to write. And especially when you have a, a case like, like the Bike Path Rapist case or the Joan Giambra case, um, those things really weigh on you emotionally, physically, mentally. You have to have an outlet. And, you know, I'm not the stereotypical, you know, I'm not going to fall into a bottle, you know, start chain smoking. Mm -hmm. I threw myself into writing because it's very uh, therapeutic for me because I get to pick the endings. They're not always a happy ending, but I get to pick the endings. And a very wonderful thing actually happened was that my uh, husband's best friend opened a bookstore called the Dog Ears Bookstore in South <laughs> Buffalo. We happen to be here, Mark. <laughs> yeah. And it's a wonderful little bookstore. And one of the things that happened was he started a writer's group at the Dog Ears Bookstore. And I started attending the writer's group on Thursday nights. And that made sure that Every Thursday, I would have to have at least four or five pages to share with the group. And that motivated me to 
really concentrate on writing. And one night I was having an argument with a dear friend of mine about making that kind of time. And she said to me, you know, well, there's no way that I can always have four or five pages and nobody has that kind of time and it just can't be done. And um, I kind of looked at it like uh, gauntlet thrown down, challenge accepted. I came in the next Thursday and dropped 85 pages down in front of her and went, booyah. (laughs) (laughs) And the main character in my book, A Cold Day in Hell, is named Lauren Riley. And that, um, who is, she's one of my best friends. Her daughter's name is Riley. And it's absolutely named after her daughter, sort of an in-your-face type of thing (laughs) to her. So I guess our... um, Mutually abusive relationship is responsible <laughs> for the the birth of my book in a way. Wow! So that's your that's your first novel. You wrote yes. many uh, short stories before that were that were published, correct? Yeah, my very first short story was in a collection called Buffalo Noir, and I was I got lucky enough that and um. The publishing world is like anything else. A lot has to do with word of mouth and, you know, who you know and connections. And a friend of mine in New York City talked to another writer who went to the University of Buffalo and was be, uh, was involved in Buffalo Noir. And my writer friend said, hey, I know this cop in Buffalo and she writes and maybe she'd be interested in, in doing a short story. So I got contacted by the editor, um, Ed Park, and he said, do you want to write a short story for, um, we'll see if, you know, if it makes it in. And so I wrote my very first short story um, that was published called Falling on Ice, and it made it into the book with um, Lawrence Block, who was a literary legend in the mystery world, Joyce Carol Oates, who was one of America's greatest living writers, who was from Lockport, Um, S.J. Rosen, who was a mystery heavyweight and the wonderful Gary Earl Ross who was above, still lives here in Buffalo and is amazing is an Edgar Award winner and I was blessed enough to be included in that and um, I still write short stories I just had one that came out in a, um, a magazine down and out the magazine just came out this month and another short story of mine was just published in an anthology called blood work with some pretty heavy hitters as well and I was very lucky to be included in that so I kind of write short stories now to clear my brain when I'm writing um I did I just finished the third book in the series it was due September 1st so the first book took me eight years to write the second book in the series took me a year to write the third book took me three months to write oh wow and I don't think that you're lucky. I think that this is real talent because yeah. I read the book and I flew through it. And I mean, I think it's be- the best is yet to come because it was like building the character. That that has to be hard. Like a trilogy. Yeah, like building a character, you know, you, there's so much depth. And, you know, and this character is like a hard, you know, she's a, like tough. She's tough, you know. It's... Yeah, she's a lot tougher than me. <laughs> I don't think I think if she was a real person, I don't even think she would like me. I don't even think we'd be friends because she's so not like me. There's so many things about her 
that are the only, the only thing I really, really have in common with her is we both have two daughters, although mine are still in high school, <laughs> and we both are addicted to coffee. I drink coffee 24 seven like her, but, um, you know, by book three, you know, you, you have to think of, because my books don't, my characters are, are changing and aging and growing. They're not static in some series the characters stay the same age forever. You know, there'll be 15 or 20 books in the series and they never age. Um, Ed McBain, who wrote the 87th Precinct series, his characters, he started writing it in the 50s and stopped writing it in the 2000s. And his characters, who are, which he's a wonder, and um, if you want to talk about literary influences, Ed McBain, the 87th Precinct series are phenomenal and fantastic, but his characters never aged. In my series, though, my character she's not only is she aging she's changing and she's growing in a whole bunch of different ways and so are the other characters in the book and everyone in the first book is in the second book but not everyone makes it to the third book oh. yeah that's i know i when i read it when i got to the end like i felt like it was october like that was eerie and one of the things i wanted to do is buffalo's known for snow and chicken wings and the bills and I kind of wanted, that's why I said it in the summertime, I kind of wanted to show the other aspects of the city of Buffalo because this is such a great town, and it lends itself to murder mysteries Yeah. in so many ways. Uh, there are still so many pockets of the city that are gritty and rust belt and crumbling grain elevators next to, you know, river works, and it's there's such a duality going on and it is the perfect place to set murder mysteries because you really never know who the good guy or the bad guy is. Right. And there's a few things. Okay. So is there an actual coffee shop in the theater district? I mean, are you adding places to Buffalo too? Like an Italian restaurant on main street? I remember. And I was like trying to think of these things. Um, some of the, some of the places are definitely real places and some places I, I had to make up just because, Especially if something bad is going to happen in the place you don't want. Yeah, to, like to, where the murder happens. Yes, that is Total. that that is totally fabricated. Um, there's a couple of reasons why I I did that. Be, one and one of the reasons also was because of the detective from that. Um, Joe. Joe, who is such a bad guy, and I didn't want someone. And I, I, I only say that it's south of the city. So, you you know, a lot of people, you know, say, well, is it Orchard Park? Is it Hamburg? And I say it's neither one of them. But if there was somewhere in between Orchard Park and Hamburg, like nestled in there, yeah, it would be, be right there. But what I didn't want to happen was someone to say, you know, oh, you wrote this about me. You know, that's, you know. Because um, every uh, Italian lawyer in the city of Buffalo thinks I wrote Violani about him. <laughs> and and I think Louis Mastillo could play him. Oh yeah, he and, could. Uh, Louis Mastillo would be. <laughs> and I have to say all the time, no, I just totally made him up. He's not based on anybody, you know. That's why it's called fiction, you know. Yeah. Well, then, if it ever comes a movie, yeah, we got a guy for Louis, you. <laughs> well, he'll be he'll be top of my list. The novel's called a cold day. 
Cold Day in Hell. Uh, you can pick that up on Amazon. The Murder Book is the next one in the series. You can pre-order that on Amazon, correct? Yes, and at the Dog Ears Bookstore. And the Dog Ears Bookstore ha- has pre-order. You can pre-order here, and we've seen Cold Day in Hell. It's down there, Mark. So you guys should all pick it up. So you, you're getting now. Now you're a writer. Tell us about how titles are come about. You don't have any control over the title. Is this true? Yes, uh, but there's a caveat to that. I mean, if you really hate the title, you can get your agent involved, but it comes down to picking your battles, you yeah. know, and you also have to, so you have to be able to give up a little bit of control of your work um, when you traditionally publish, you know, and you have to trust that the publisher is has been doing this a lot longer than you, and so they know what sells, and my original title for a cold day in hell was called reasonable doubt but they came back and said no no it's going to be a cold day in hell and i'm like okay i can live with that my second book is called the murder book and that is the original title but someone had explained to me that um stephanie meyer's uh book twilight the original title was forks f-o-r-k-s which is the name of the town that she lives in okay and I'm thinking that her publisher really made a good choice to yeah. change it to yeah. Twilight. You know, so you got you have to let you know you kind of have to let a little bit of your um, your baby go and let someone else. You know, yeah. you know. I thought I was gonna play on the cold, cold day in hell, but then I was even thinking I don't know what else you can use cold for. What's the? Uh, how do you get an agent? How does that happen? Well, you know. Some people say that it's harder to get an agent than it is to get a publisher, but there's a great um, website called Query Tracker, and if anyone out there is thinking about being a writer and thinks that they have a manuscript that's ready to go out to the world, what you have to do is, and it used to be you'd have to do this by snail mail, now it's all on on the internet, which is great, is you write what's called a query letter, which is a one-page letter, which basically says, this is who I am, this is what my book's about, and depending on the a- the um, literary agency's guidelines, you will attach 5, 10, 15, or 25 pages, and then you send it off and be prepared to be rejected many, 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 many times because there's so many people out there writing so many great books, and the market is so small, and and that's what I did. I sent out query letters in batches of 10, and then I would see, okay, I only got a request for a full, which is the, your whole entire manuscript, and you send it off to the agent. Only, you know, only one time in that batch of ten, so maybe I have to tweak my query letter. So, you tweak your query letter, and then you resend it, and you keep doing that. And I think I sent my query letter to about seventy-five agents, which is about average, you know, before I landed my agent, um, who was out of New York City, and he's wonderful, but. I have, no, I have yet to meet him face-to-face. Really? Everything is by phone and by email. I, I will meet him, if all goes well, I will meet him for the first time in October face-to-face when I go to New York City. It, also, like, holding your book, like, it's a nice book. Like, it, like did you, ha- like, hold other books and were like, I want it to be like this book? Or did somebody pick that for you? No, the, the publishing house does all that for you. You know, um, a lot of people are self-publishing nowadays and there are a lot of writers who 
are traditionally published, but they get the rights back to their earlier books and they self-publish those. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. You can go the traditional route like I did, but if you if that is not something, if you feel strongly that you don't want anyone to mess with your baby, and I get that, then you know, then self-publishing is definitely the way to go. And there's so many um, good options nowadays to do that. Um, and there are people making uh, good money from self-publishing. You know, that's not the route I, I chose, but I can't say that I might never go that route. Very down to earth. So yeah, some people just got to get over themselves. What do you think? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you're very down to earth. And I, I bet you it's real easy for the publishing company and uh, your agent. Good luck meeting him. What's his name? Bob. Of course it is. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. Bob's my agent. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So it's funny, like, so your advice to people would be to, like, go to a writing group, right? Absolutely. Write, write every day. Even if it's just a paragraph, go to a writer's group. Um, I'm also involved in a small chapter, our local chapter of Sisters in Crime, which is a phenomenal group. Uh, we are, we actually represent, we're called Murder on Ice. We represent uh, Syracuse. Rochester and Buffalo. We usually meet in Rochester because it's in the middle, but we have met, we have actually met here at the Dog Ears Bookstore. And it's a phenomenal, phenomenal organization. And we do have men. We call them misters. And <laughs> they really help. They're not a critique group, but they really help on with the business end of publishing. And we have, but it's not just writers. Uh, we have bloggers that are in Sisters in Crime with us. Uh, we have um, unpublished authors which is what I was when I joined and they call them guppies the great unpublished <laughs> so I was a guppy before I was a full sister and you know they do workshops to help you you know build characters or add tension or to learn how to write query letters to you know learn how to uh, pitch your book it's called an elevator pitch you should be able to build, pitch your book by the time you get into an elevator to the time you get out at the top and you should be able to tell exactly what your book is about, you know, and they help you with the elevator pitch. So it's a great organization. Yeah, you ever heard of the podcast Wine and Crime? <laughs> you probably enjoy it. <laughs> I'll have to write that down. Yeah. So we have uh, uh, the greatest followers on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Sometimes shy, but Very, uh, then not so shy. Yeah. <laughs> then there's people like our friend Michael. Yeah, yeah, Michael's very interesting. So, uh, He'll be on soon. The chef is gonna be a was cooking up some questions for you over here, Kevin Trevine. So he's gonna. Hi, Lisa. Just wanted to say thanks for sitting down with the boys from L2T. We just got a couple questions that our followers and supporters on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook wanted to uh, know about. And I guess we'll start uh, with the biggest softball I have. Um, who's your biggest literary influence? I love, love, love Stephen King. And even if you don't like horror, he is the master storyteller. It's His writing is amazing. It still continues to amaze me every time he puts out a book. Even if it's not your thing, he is just such a master craftsman. And I also, growing up and... um because I love his simplicity, I loved Ernest Hemingway. I absolutely love Ernest Hemingway. I love his short, sharp sentences. So while you were um, 
while you were writing as a police officer and b even before that you spent your life writing was the goal to become a professional writer was it to become published or was it just something you enjoyed and you kind of backed into it my goal was to write it's very hard it's it's easy to write it's very hard to complete a novel and to polish it and that's where it becomes work and that's where i think a lot of people give up because it is very time consuming and they don't have the time to edit and re-edit you know and but at the same time your book is never going to be perfect so there comes a point where you know if you are intent on getting your book published sometimes you just have to s swallow your pride and be ready for some rejection and and throw it out there to the world you know um because even if you self-publish, if you are on Amazon, you will get bad Amazon reviews, whether you're traditionally published or you're self-published. And they can be brutal. Brutal. I've read a few. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then um, you talked about your first arrest um, and it, how memorable it was for you. And uh, we wanted to know if your first arrest was more memorable than your last arrest. Do you remember or your last arrest? I remember the last one. And did you know it was the last one at the time? Well, it's hard it's hard to it's hard to say because as a detective, you know, you you pass your cases on when you leave and cases that I worked on have been solved since I left. You know, and are those my last arrests? You know, I I don't I I kind of you know I, I guess I don't, I guess I can't say, you know, because there, the cases that I worked on that are finally, you know, are being prosecuted after I retired. I mean, that's such a great feeling to know that those families finally have that closure. So it, it, I guess um, they're both memorable, but in different ways. The first and the last arrests are both memorable. So your, your work's still being... It's, it's still going. It's still going. Yeah, awesome. it's still going. Well, that's really got to cool. feel good. Yeah, that's great. Um, is there a uh, is there a cold case that you would love to get a crack at solving? Um, at, like anywhere in the world, any famous case um, that you know, maybe Jack the Ripper or something like that. Just something you would love to get. You think you can solve this, or you can be a part of the team that solves it? And you know what's funny is that. When you when I, I love to travel and when you travel places, wherever you go, if you walk into a bar, I know none of you guys have ever been in a bar, but <laughs> if you walk into a bar and you sit down in a neighborhood and you start talking to people and you and when you say you have a law enforcement background, especially when you say cold cases, almost across the board, they'll start telling you about something that happened whether you're in Poland or England or Ireland, they'll start telling you about something that happened in the vicinity. And it could have happened 40, 50, 60 years ago, but it's still entrenched in the local memory. And I would love to sink my teeth into maybe not some of the more famous ones because, you know, they've been done and done and done, like um, the Zodiac Killer or... Um, Jack the Ripper or Lizzie Borden, but some of these more obscure ones that are still so real to the people of these towns that it's uh, sort of become local folklore. 
And now I don't know if any of you saw it was in um, it was in the paper maybe two or three weeks ago. They just arrested a man for in um, they arrested him in Spain, but the murder happened in Norway of an 11 year old boy. Uh, the murder happened 20 years ago. They swabbed 17,500 people wow. to get DNA to solve this case. And I just find that fascinating that they would the sheer that the sheer number of people that were willing to give up their DNA and the person that they caught that it that was the murderer he didn't show up on the day he was supposed to give his DNA and they tracked him to Spain and I that case has fascinated me absolutely fascinated me because if you suggested here in the United States that everyone in a city give up their DNA to try to solve a murder You'd have the ACLU, you'd have people protesting, you'd have, you know, um, massive um, debates. And, uh, but these people in Norway all, you know, volunteered their DNA. But then you think, but are they really volunteering it if you don't give it and they track you down anyways? Yeah. So there's where the, there's where the moral and ethical questions come in. But that case is fascinating. I would love to really dig into that case. I'm working on my old, my own cold case. 1991, I was walking down Abbey Road and some, some guys thought it was funny to throw their Dairy Queen milkshakes at me. And I'm going to catch those guys. I'm t- <laughs> it was cold out. And I have never, I never forgot the guy's face. And I'm going to get him. I'm telling you. All right, we have just one more question. Uh, it's not as uh, not as good as Jim's story there. Um, what is the most revolutionary element uh, in detective work to bring it out of the dark ages? What, like, is there anything that has been such a big advancement in in the work you've done that something that made uh, basically that makes solving cold cases possible? Like, without a doubt, DNA is the biggest revolution to police work across the board. Prior to the use of DNA, which um, around here in Buffalo, we started using in the early to mid-1990s. But prior to that, detectives were solving crimes basically the same way in the 1990 as they were in 1940. They were hitting the pavement. They were interviewing witnesses. They were interrogating suspects. They were taking fingerprints. And DNA has changed all of that because DNA is your genetic fingerprint. It does not lie. Obviously, you have to put DNA in a context. Well, I always say that DNA is the icing on the cake, but you have to bake the cake. So you have to explain how the DNA got to where it is at the crime scene. But there is no... There is no doubt there is it doesn't lie it doesn't have an agenda it just is and um especially for cases um where people say that they're innocent and you know when they've gone back with the innocence project and run the dna and found out they've taken people off of death row which is one of the reasons why i don't having helped had a hand in getting two people out of jail i absolutely do not believe in the death penalty because you never can be 100% certain. Would you say that also, like, you wrote it in your book about how 
you know, they're taking old files and putting them into computers and computerizing it. Is, is that like a huge thing for detective work as well? Yeah, databases are fantastic because you can crunch a lot of information into um, a very quick search as opposed to doing it all by hand and by and and by paper but and that's something that's true that I touch on in my book is that most of the vast majority of the homicide files were not digitized especially you know historic files were all on paper and I actually had a big brown binder with all the homicides by year and where they happened and someone come in and say hey uh, do you know about a murder that happened on Abbott Road in 1982? And I'd say, hold on, let me check my computer. And I'd pull out this big binder and flip to 1982. And that and I would run my finger down until I found Abbott Road, and, and that's how I would look it up. And then I would take the case number and go into the file room and look up the file. But that was the same way they were doing it since, you know, detective work began, you know? And, you know, sometimes, you know, modern isn't always better, you know. Um, sometimes old-fashioned police work works as well. Right, like a crash of a system is just as good as a fire in a if, whatever. You know, you know it, and that's the thing is if, if the lights go out, police work doesn't stop, you know. Right. You have to, if all the computers crash, you have to still be able to do your job. And you have to know how to do that without a computer or a smartphone. For sure. The book is called A Cold Day in Hell. You can get it at Dog Ears Bookstore or Amazon, and you could pre-order the murder book, which is the the second book in the trilogy. That'll be out February 2019? February 8th, uh, 2019. Okay, we'll look for that. Uh, well, Lisa Redman, you are licensed to talk. Thanks for stopping by today. Thanks for having me. Oh, it was, it was a, a pleasure. Well, she's going to Cupertino. I don't know where that is I'm sure it's nice and warm there I'm sure there is no other place And I'll find a way to ask her Can you pack me with your things And we'll go to Cupertino like there is no other place Yeah, we'll go to Cupertino This has been Licensed to Talk. Follow us on Twitter at JCIsL2T and Instagram Licensed to Talk.